As you're turning to the book of Job, remember we're going to be taking this in a little bit larger chunks uh, as we go through our Old Testament passages. So we'll be giving an overview of what we're looking at, zeroing in on some uh, particular passages, and uh, hopefully as we make our way through, we'll get a, a broad understanding of what we have here in uh, the Old Testament specifically. So the book of Job is the story of a man who suffered tremendously through no apparent fault of his own. The setting, as I've mentioned in the past, is believed to be the days of the patriarchs. Think Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is before Moses, before their time in Egypt, and before coming into uh, the conquering of the Promised Land. And so, believed to be in the days uh, of the patriarchs. Also, the area that it takes place in, the land of Uz, believed to be east of the Jordan area. So, it would be the, uh, uh, the Syrian or Arabian desert. Again, speculation, but reasons for that. The book of Job is the first of five poetical books, Job through Song of Solomon. And to look at a, an uh, outline of the book of Job, it begins in prose. This is, again, Hebrew poetry, but it begins in prose, the first two chapters. And we see where Job loses his wealth, his family, and his health. And then the bulk of the book is set out in Hebrew poetry, and it's Job wishing he'd never been born, and then it's three of his friends coming to comfort him and speaking to him one at a time, and then Job responding to each one of those friends as they speak to him. And this takes place three different times, three different rounds of speeches, and then a fourth individual is introduced, Elihu, and he speaks, and then um, God speaks, and Job replies. And then the last part of the last chapter goes back to prose, it's the epilogue, and we see where Job is restored, and his friends are proven to be wrong in what they say. So as you read through the book of Job, just keep that in the back of your mind. There, there are elements of truth in what these friends say, but the whole premise from where they're coming from is wrong, and so keep that in mind. And so what we're going to be looking at today is we're going to be looking at Job's death wish. I wish I'd never been born, and then the first round of speeches and so as we look at those, we're going to have, again, Job speak, and then the speeches begin. Eliphaz is going to speak in chapters 4 and 5. Job will reply to Eliphaz in chapters 6 and 7. Then Bildad's turn in chapter 8. Then Job replies to Bildad, chapters 9 and 10. And then Zophar speaks in chapter 11. And then we'll close it out this morning with Job replying to Zophar in chapters 12 through 14. So we got a lot on our plate this morning, okay, that we're going to be taking a look at. Okay, so um, remember again with his three friends, and, and those of you who are familiar with the book of Job know that his three friends are referred to as worthless physicians and miserable counselor, counselors and so forth. But I want you to remember that they came, okay? They did come, and they did sit in silence for an entire week mourning with Job, and then they spoke. I think if maybe they kept their mouth closed, that would have been the, the key thing. But again, I think there's a well-intentioned aspect of these friends that are coming. And I think, you know, there's a number of lessons we can learn through this. Um, and one of them is with these three friends, the ministry of presence, is, as I uh, like to think of it, just being there for somebody who's going through it. Sometimes the best thing that we can do is just be there and say nothing and um, just be that listening ear, that shoulder to cry on, you know. 
So Job, we get a picture in this section. Uh, in the last couple of chapters, we see Job is just this upright person, which he is, and God attests to that. And we see him holding fast to his integrity and his faith in God. And here we see his heart, just the, the element of despair that he's going through. Can you imagine what it would be like to lose? Uh, I mean, your possessions is one thing, all of your wealth, but to lose all of your children, I just, I mean, who can understand the depth of that kind of pain? And now he's hit with the physical infirmity as well. His body is covered with boils and he's miserable uh, physically, not only heartbroken on the inside, but he's miserable physically as well. And so in chapter three, basically the gist of that is Job wishes he had never been born. Okay, and we get the idea here in chapter 3, verse 1. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. Remember, Satan said, if you strike him, he's going to curse you. Well, Job doesn't curse God, but he does curse the day that he was born. And verse 2, he spoke and said, may the day perish on which I was born. And the night in which it was said, a male child is conceived. Now, the language turns uh, rather picturesque from this point on, like verse 4, may that day be darkness, may God above not seek it, nor the light shine upon it. Verse 5, may darkness and the shadow of death claim it, may a cloud settle on it, may the blackness of the day terrify it. You get the idea on uh, kind of the, the lofty language that's used here to describe, I wish I had never been born. And in his mind, this is what he thinks. It would be better to have never been born than to experience what I've experienced. And that's kind of contrary, isn't it, to that statement, not that this is scripture or anything, but you know, the statement, it's, it's better to have loved and lost to have never loved at all. You know, Job's like, forget it. I don't want any of it. You know, I wish I'd never been born. And then he goes on in the chapter and wishes that, you know, if he had been born, he wishes he was a stillborn, that he would never see the light of day. In other words, coming out and, and just being dead immediately and never seeing the light of day. I just want to jump to the end of the chapter. And I spoke about this last week in verse 25, where Job ends up saying, for the thing I greatly feared has come upon me and what I dreaded has happened to me. And I just think about that verse, and I, I think about myself, and the, you know, what, I, what would be the worst thing that could happen you know, to me? You know, we can kind of get anxious about you know, whatever loss that might really devastate us. And I, I think about how important it is for us to have that foundation of our faith solid before that day comes. You know? And uh, the way that our faith is going to grow is by drawing close to the Lord. Romans 10, 17 says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So as we're in God's word, I think one of the things that it does is it teaches us about who God is and what he's like, what his character is like. We know he's good, you know, and so how are we going to know that? How are we really going to know that? It's by, again, absorbing the word of God into ourselves. So again, when those days come, we'll be able to, to stand strong like Job. He's a Great example of perseverance, patience in the midst of, of tremendous suffering. So uh, a good word uh, that we see uh, through this in that regard. So now Eliphaz uh, starts out. Uh, again, remember, everybody's been silent for a week. And Job just bemoans the day that he'd ever been born. And then Eliphaz, it says in verse 1 of chapter 4, the Temanite answered and said. Now, as far as who Eliphaz is, he is, um, uh, well, I'm sorry, the speculation with this as far as who he is. Esau, the brother of Jacob. So Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, 
Jacob had a brother named Esau, and Esau had a son named Eliphaz, and Eliphaz had a son named Teman. Now, this is Eliphaz the Temanite. So this is an Eliphaz that came from the area of Teman. So you, can you see the idea where this is probably along that line and maybe generations removed from that or down from that? Kind of like people will, will name their children after their parents or after their grandparents or so forth. And so that's, again, it's speculation, but this is part of the reason why they think it's the time of the patriarchs that it's in this surroundings and so forth that um, uh, the book of Job took place. And so here Eliphaz, he is... Uh, uh, again, as it says here, the Temanite. And notice how he starts off. Uh, and by the way, Jeremiah 49.7 speaks of the land of Teman and it being known for its wisdom. So Eliphaz begins in chapter 4, verse 2. If one attempts a word with you, will you become weary? But who can withhold himself from speaking? Surely you have instructed many, and you have strengthened weak hands. Your words have upheld him who was stumbling, and you have strengthened the feeble knees. But now it comes upon you, and you are weary. It touches you, and you are troubled. Is not your reverence your confidence, and the integrity of your ways your hope? Remember now, whoever perished being innocent, or where were the upright ever cut off? Even as I have seen those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. Can you see that even right out of the gates, they seem to be a little bit harsh with Job, a little bit abrasive. And the insinuation is that, and, and again, it's, it's a truth, is it not? Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. If you sow to the flesh, you will of the flesh reap corruption. If you sow to the spirit, you will of the spirit reap everlasting life. And this is kind of theologically where Eliphaz is coming from. You're suffering, you must have sown iniquity. And that's why that's happening. The sowing and reaping is a truth, but it's a general truth, isn't it? Every time somebody goes through something, it doesn't mean that they're suffering and going through that because they have sinned and they have done something wrong. How do we know that? Because we see Job. And we know that he is not suffering because of his own sin. How do we know that? We see the backstory in chapters 1 and 2, why this is coming upon him. So one of the things that I think it's essential foundationally for all of us as Christians to know is that when we're suffering, it doesn't mean that God is punishing us for a particular sin that we've committed. That kind of needs to be a base understanding. Now, it could be that God is chastening us because he is that perfect heavenly father that would do that. But please don't take every time you or somebody you know is going through something that they're being punished because of their sin, okay? That's kind of foundational so that you can just go, you know, Lord, I really don't know why this is happening to me. But if there is something in my life that you want to show me, then absolutely be open to that. But please make sure you don't just take bad things happening as you did something wrong. I think that's key, and I think we have the, the foundation for this here. And unfortunately, this is what Eliphaz is doing, is he's insinuating, and, and really, all three of his friends do the same thing. They insinuate, you have sinned, you're being punished for your sin. And this is where, and how do we know it's wrong? The way we know it's wrong is when God speaks in the very last chapter and says, 
that my, they, my Eliphaz, you and your friends have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So we get God's assessment in the very end that what they're saying, and I think the foundation of what they're saying is wrong. There's elements of truth in it, but the, the basis, the premise of what they're saying is wrong. And Job, even if we see all of his, why God, why are you doing this? Realize that again, he did not curse God and he was, he was doing the best he could to uh, you know, just seek after answers in what was going on in his own life. You know, Eliphaz continues on. He gets a little, what I would call the hyper-spiritual, if you jump ahead to verse 12, where Eliphaz continues and he says, Job 4.12, Now a word was secretly brought to me, and my ear received a whisper of it. And then again, they, they kind of get picturesque and disquieting thoughts from the visions of the night when deep sleep falls on men. Fear came upon me and trembling, which made all my bones shake. Then a spirit passed before my face. The hair on my body stood up. It stood still, but I could not discern its appearance. A form was before my eyes. There was silence. Then I heard a voice saying, Can a mortal be more righteous than God? Can a man be more pure than his maker? And then he continues on again. The insinuation is, you're not righteous, Job. You're a sinner, and you're being judged for your sin. But he throws kind of this spiritual support behind why he's saying what he's saying. It's not just his opinion. I mean, there's been, he's received this from the spiritual realm. And my question is, what spirit did he receive it from? You know what I mean? This doesn't seem like God to me as I read through that. And the thing that jumped out in my mind, and I'm going to be making you know, a handful of comments as we go through here. We want to be careful not to be hyper-spiritual. You know what I mean by that? Have you ever met somebody that just felt they were a little more holy than you were? And, and we don't want to be like that towards other people because you know, the, the, the Lord loves us all. That, to me, reeks so much of pride. And pride is not what's supposed to be in our lives. I had a, a person say to me years ago, and by the way, you guys, I would never tell a story with somebody sitting in the congregation, okay? So it's, it's, it's years and years ago where somebody came to me and said, you know, I just had this wonderful experience with God and I just wish that maybe, maybe someday you could have that same kind of experience. And this is the type of guy I had to pray for a heart to love him. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and so don't be like that, okay? We don't want to be the hyper-spiritual type. And so anyway, Eliphaz continues on as we jump into chapter 5. Call out now. Is there anyone who will answer you? And to which of the holy ones will you turn? For wrath kills a foolish man. And envy slays a simple one. I have seen the foolish taking root, but suddenly I cursed his dwelling place. Notice verse 4. His sons are far from safety. They are crushed in the gate, and there is no deliverer. It seems like he, he seems to be insinuating that the death of Job's sons was because of Job's sin. And I just can't begin to fathom what that would be like to be Job and have to sit there and, and put up with this. In verses 6 through 8, For affliction does not come from the dust, nor does trouble spring from the ground. Yet man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. But as for me, I would seek God, and to God I would commit my cause. And again, the insinuation seems to be that Job is guilty and that he's not seeking after God. In verses 11 through 13, he sets on high those who are lowly, and those who mourn are lifted to safety. 
He frustrates the devices of the crafty so that their hands cannot carry out their plans. He catches the wise in their own craftiness and the counsel of the cunning comes quickly upon them. As we look at it in context, again, Eliphaz is saying God exalts the humble, but he frustrates. He catches the crafty and the insinuation seems to be Job, he's catching you right now. Verse 17, behold, happy is the man whom God corrects. Therefore, do not despise the chastening of the Almighty. Now, again, this is a truth, is it not? I mean, happy is the person whom God will discipline, whom God will correct, and we shouldn't despise his chastening. But this isn't the reason for Job's suffering. How do we know that? We have chapters one and two. We've got the insight that these guys don't have. It's not because of anything that Job has done wrong. But let's talk about discipline for just a moment. In Proverbs 3, 11 through 12, my son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor detest his correction for whom the Lord loves, he corrects, just as a father the son in whom he delights. So God is the perfect heavenly father. If we get off base, he is faithful to chasten us. And so we want to keep that in mind as well, okay? This is where we have to be discerning and really be seeking after the Lord when things are happening to us. God, is this you correcting me? Or is this just something happening because I live in a fallen world? Or is it a spiritual attack that's taking place? This is where we want to be in communication with the Lord. Because God is the perfect Father who does guide us. And when we do, and we do get off base, He's there to help us get back on the right path. And you know, when we think about discipline, think of the word disciple. It's a training ground. Like as parents, our job is to train our children to be all that God intends them to be. And so when our kids do something wrong and we go to chasten them or discipline them, it's not just to inflict pain on them. I'm gonna punish you because you did the wrong thing. No, the whole thing is to be able to train them so that they can learn to do the right thing. And the little toddler that goes to put his hand on the stove and you come and smack his hand away to make a good point that he'll remember, it's so that they don't hurt themselves even more by touching the stove. And so this is the key thing. This is, it's the training that, that we wanna do as parents. And this is what God does for us as well in training us to be the people that he wants us to be. Elevaz closes out his section in verse 27 where he says, behold, this we have searched out it is true hear it and know for yourself in essence saying Job, we myself and my friends with me we've searched this out it is true we know it you would do good to listen to us in all of this and so now job is going to respond and listen to the despair that's in his voice chapter six then job answered and said oh that my grief were fully weighed and my calamity laid with it on the scales for then it would be heavier than the sand of the sea. Therefore, my words have been rash. For the arrows of the Almighty are within me. My spirit drinks in their poison. The terrors of God are arrayed against me. And you just see the pain. You hear the pain that's within Job. He, he wants his friends to show a little bit of kindness and, and recognize that, look, God is, I haven't done anything, but look what God is doing. In another spot, he's gonna say, he sets me up as his target, and he's just having target practice with me right now as his, as his arrows that are coming in, that are dipped in poison, are shooting inside of me. And he's looking, he's looking for that kindness and comfort to come from his friends. Look at verse 14. To him who is afflicted, 
Kindness should be shown by his friend, even though he forsakes the fear of the Almighty. My brothers have dealt deceitfully like a brook, like the streams of the brook that pass away. Kindness should be shown to the afflicted, but my brothers, my friends here, they've, they've dealt deceitfully against me. We should be kind to those who have fallen. And this is what jumped out to me, even though he forsakes the fear of the Almighty. That really spoke to my heart. Even though he's unworthy of the comfort, even though he hasn't repented, maybe, we still need to bring comfort to them. Why? Because they've fallen. And especially if they haven't repented, they're in a place, they're in a place of a greater pain. You know, they need to be able to get up on their feet and get going again. And so whatever, whatever that might look like, whether it's the fallen in sin or whether it's just the fallen in calamity, not because of their sin, to come alongside and be that person for them. I think about what it said in Galatians chapter 6, that if any among you have fallen, you who are spiritual, go to such a one and seek to do what? Seek to bring restoration in that person's life. And so being there for one another. And Job cries out for that, but his friends are not giving that to him. Listen at his heart in verse 24. Teach me, and I'll hold my tongue. Cause me to understand where I have erred. Jump ahead to verse 29. Yield now, let there be no injustice. Yes, concede, notice, my righteousness still stands. Now, what Job is saying is, he's just saying, I'm the person that was spoken of in chapter one. The chapter starts off with Job as a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. And God twice attested and said, that is who Job is. He is blameless, not sinless, but he's blameless in the sense that he's above reproach. In other words, he's the real deal. He's not a sinner and he's not being judged for his sin. And basically Job is saying that same thing. By the way, this is just going to tick his friends off to no end. Because in their mind, their theology is telling them the only reason that you would be suffering is because you've done something wrong. Why? Because our God is just. Our God is fair. And he wouldn't allow that to happen to you. So you can see where their theology is and where their theology is just a little bit off. So this begins to infuriate them. And that's why the conversations escalate. It's because, in large part, due to Job's response. In chapter 7, Job speaks of the futility of life. Chapter 7, is there not a time of hard service for man on earth? Are not his days also like the days of a hired man? like a servant who earnestly desires the shade and like a hired man who eagerly looks for his wages. So I have been allotted months of futility and wearisome nights have been appointed to me. It is true that life can be hard and that we can go through some very difficult times. And the reason for that is the fall. That's why life is difficult. When God was pronouncing judgment upon Adam and Eve because of their sin and also upon the serpent in Genesis chapter 3, he said to Adam this. He said, cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. Because of their sin, not only were they cursed, but creation was cursed. 
And so rather than having a garden they could just tend and enjoy, now to get food it was going to take work and they were going to sweat. And it doesn't matter what you do, there is going to be that element of labor that goes within it because of the fall. You know, I've heard it was said when I was younger and we tell the same thing to our kids, as far as a career goes, find something you really like to do and find a way to make money at it because you're going to be doing it a big part of your life. So you can enjoy what you're doing. But even in enjoying what you're doing, it's still going to have that element of labor and burden to it. I remember a pastor telling me early, early on, he said, you know, it doesn't matter what you do. Even being a, a pastor, you're going to do it by the sweat of your brow because there's going to be those times where, you know, you're going to be moving towards burnout and you have to just recognize no matter what you're doing, that's a part of the fall. And of course, we do what we can to be able to, to not burn out and so forth. But the hard parts of life. Verse four, we continue on in chapter seven. When I lie down, I say, when shall I arise and the night be ended? For I've had my fill of tossing till dawn. My flesh is caked with worms and dust. My skin is cracked and breaks out afresh. Remember again, he's covered from the sole of his foot to the top of his head with boils. And he has a piece of pottery that he's scraping those boils, maybe to relieve the pain, but to, to speak of it. Maybe it's picturesque. Maybe there's really worms there. I don't know. But you can tell he's miserable. You know, just lying in bed, tossing and turning, waiting for morning to come. And then he gets up and he's got all of this going on. So you can just see, again, the, the pain and the despair that he's in. Look at verse 7, just a couple more verses. Oh, remember that my life is a breath. My eye will never again see good. Look at verse 16. I loathe my life. I would not live forever. Let me alone for my days are but a breath. Now he recognizes in the midst of his pain, in the midst of the turmoil, that life is so short. We are here for just a moment and then we are gone. Life is like a breath. It's likened to a vapor in James chapter 4 verse 14 where it says you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. It's like when you get that cup of tea or hot chocolate or coffee in the morning and you see the steam coming up on it, off of it, it's there and then it's gone. And then you go put it in the microwave and bring it back and then, you know, it's there and it's gone. And that's like our lives. You know, we think, we think that, man, my life, and, and that's because how we look at life. This is everything and it is, right? But in reality, Compared to eternity, it's like a vapor. It's here today, it's gone tomorrow. And to have that perspective is so important because that helps us look at our lives and see what am I gonna do with my life while I'm here for this short period of time. And wisdom would say that we would look to the Lord, what do you wanna do with my life so that my life can mean as much as it possibly can in this short period of time that I'm here on earth. Then as we jump into um, verse 20 of chapter seven, he asked the question, have I sinned? What have I done to you, O watcher of men? Why have you, here it is, why have you set me as your target so that I'm a burden to myself? Why then do you not pardon my transgression and take away my iniquity? For now I will lie down in the dust and you will seek me diligently, but I will no longer be. He cries out the wise to God. God, why is this happening? Have I sinned? I mean, again, that's a good question to ask. Have I done something wrong? Is there something that needs to be brought to my attention? But 
again, you see his, his heart just breaking and bleeding and not understanding. Now we have Bildad in chapter 8. Bildad the Shuhite. So Shua was a son of Abraham. Uh, from Keturah, Genesis chapter 25. So this could be that Abraham and Keturah had Shua. It became a, a place called Shua. And then uh, this particular person came from this location, Bildad, the Shuhite. When he speaks, his concern is for the justice of God. It's like he's coming on the scene to defend God. You're saying all of these things, like, what have I done to you? He comes in to defend God. And that's something that I, I think we all can, can tend to do. You know, we want to make sure, number one, that we represent God uh, right, but also to, you know, explain, well, wait a minute, no, God isn't like that. No, God is good. And, God, and we, we have a tendency to do that, which is good. And as we were approaching the book of Job, and I was looking at that, especially in the opening chapters, where God says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There's none like him, you know, and I felt within, I need to make sure that I, I defend God in this and make sure everybody understands, like God is not just flippant and capricious with people's lives. And I read a commentator that said, God doesn't need any human being to defend him. And that really spoke to my heart. And I thought, you know what, I could be miscoloring it. I could be coloring it the wrong way by standing up and trying to defend. So I'm just going to try and be true to the text. And what is the truth of God? Well, that's why, again, we read the Bible and we see that he is good. He is loving, compassionate, merciful, and so forth. And he's also God. Okay? And we'll continue on here. So his concern is for the justice of God, but Bildad neglects the compassion that's needed. Chapter 8, Then Bildad the Shuhite answered and said, How long will you speak these things and the words of your mouth be like a strong wind? Does God subvert judgment, or does the Almighty pervert justice? If your sons have sinned against him, he has cast them away for their transgression. Again, how hard this would be to hear, recognizing all that Job has lost. And so, the breaking of his heart. Verse 5, if you would earnestly seek God and make your supplication to the Almighty, if you were pure and upright, surely now he would awake for you and prosper your rightful dwelling place. Though your beginning was small, yet your latter end would increase abundantly. Now, again, there's elements of truth. Verse 5, if you would seek God and, and cry out to him, make your supplication to him. It is true, generally speaking, when we repent and get right with God, things go better. That's a general truth. But again, within this context, he's missing the mark because that's not why it's happening. And the insinuation is really what's crushing Job all the more. When you think about it, in the beginning, he loses his wealth and his family. His heart's broken at that point. Then he loses his health. Now his body's broken and, and the pain that's going on. Now he's got these friends that are bringing this stuff up. Now his mind's being tormented, isn't it? So you see this test is continuing in, in all that he's going through, and yet he still holds fast to his integrity. Again, he becomes the example of the one who perseveres with patience through the suffering that's going on. So Bildad speaks, and then Job responds in chapter 9, and Job wants to declare his innocence, and now the terminology starts sounding a lot like a courtroom as we get into chapter 9. Then Job answered and said, Truly I know it is so, 
But how can a man be righteous before God? If one wished to contend with him, he could not answer him one time out of a thousand. God is wise in heart and mighty in strength, who has hardened himself against him and prospered. Job begins to recognize the great chasm that's between really any man, not just him, but any man, because of man's frailty, because of man's sinfulness, and because of the holiness of God. Job goes on to speak of God's greatness. Verse 5, he removes the mountains, and they do not know. When he overturns them in his anger, he shakes the earth out of its place, and its pillars tremble. He commands the sun, and it does not rise. He seals off the stars. He alone spreads out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. He made the bear, Orion, and the Pleiades, and the chambers of the south. He has done great things past finding out. Yes, wonders without number. Don't you love Job's heart for God and attesting to how great he is? He's the creator of the heavens and the earth. He created the earth, and, and it's by the thunder of his voice that the earth shakes. He is the one that spread out the heavens alone. He is the one that not only created the stars, the untold trillions of stars, but he calls them all by name. That's the greatness of our God. I think it's cool that he mentions the constellations as well. But here in this desire to go, God, what have I done? He wishes that he could maybe have his day, almost like in a courtroom setting where he could ask God, okay, what is your case against me? And so jump ahead to verse 32 in chapter 9, where he says, For he is not a man, as I am, that I may answer him, and that we should go to court together. Nor is there any mediator between us who may lay his hand on us both. As Job recognizes the great chasm that is between him and God, he, he realizes there's nobody you know, even in my best state that can lay his hand on me and lay his hand on God and be able to bring the two of us together. Why? Well, because I'm a, I'm a sinful man. How can I come into the presence of a holy God? But there is a mediator, isn't there? There is one who can lay his hand on us as a lost humanity and upon a holy God and reconcile us together. And of course, that man, capital M, is Jesus. First Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. He is the one through his coming to earth, through his laying his life down, that made a way for a sinful humanity to come. The reason a sinful humanity can't come into God's presence is because of his sin. And it's through his death upon the cross, him giving himself as a ransom, he bore the judgment that my sin deserves. He paid the price so that I can be forgiven and makes a way that a sinful man can come into the presence of a holy God. He is the mediator that has laid his hand on both. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, it says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. His suffering upon the cross, his suffering for sin, to deal with the issue of sin, was able then to bring us into God's presence because of his death, because of his death, 
bearing our judgment and paying the price to ransom us, to set us free in order to come into his presence. Job recognizes that he is a frail person, that he at his best without God is nothing. In chapter 10, my soul loathes my life. I will give free course to my complaint. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. I will say to God, do not condemn me. Show me why you contend with me. And so he's kind of got this ebb and flow thing going on. I'm nothing, but God, what have I done? You know, and then in, in verse 15, he says, if I am wicked, woe to me. But then he says, even if I am righteous, I cannot lift up my head. I'm full of disgrace. See my misery. It's like, you know, if I'm wicked, yeah, woe to me because I deserve the judgment. But even if I'm righteous, it's like I, I'm still a mess. You know, I, chapter 10 spoke the most to me, just reading through it and him recognizing, even at my best, I'm a total mess. And it reminded me of Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6, where it says, but we are all like an unclean thing and all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. All our righteousness, the, the best of me is still a blight on God's beauty. You know, and, and it's just the way it is. That's, that's who we are as a fallen humanity. And it's good to recognize that, that without Jesus, we have absolutely nothing. Without him, we are absolutely nothing. He must become our everything. And I just see that in chapter 10 as Job is like, okay, if I'm wicked, I deserve it, but even if I'm righteous, you know, I'm still a, I'm still a wretched man. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, a wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this death-doomed body. Then we come to Zophar in chapter 11. Now, we don't know much about Zophar. He's believed to be the younger of the three friends, primarily because the other two spoke first. I think there's another passage that references that. And Zophar speaks the least. And when it gets to the, you know, we're going to do the same thing with round two. And when it gets to round three, Zophar doesn't speak. So he speaks the least of all of them. And Zophar seems to be saying of Job, you're guilty, you're stubborn, and you need to repent. And so you see the same idea coming from each of these three friends and it escalating as we go. Chapter 11, then Zophar the Naamathite answered and said, should not the multitude of words be answered and should a man full of talk be vindicated? Should your empty talk make men hold their peace? And when you mock, should no one rebuke you? For you have said, my doctrine is pure, and I am clean in your eyes. But oh, that God would speak and open his lips against you, that he would show you the secrets of wisdom, for they would double your prudence. Know therefore that God exacts from you less than your iniquity deserves. And if you got what you really deserved, you'd be really hurting right now. And so Zophar has his way of laying in to Job. And again, the same kind of truth coming, verse 13 of chapter 11, if you would prepare your heart and stretch out your hands toward him, and the idea is, and he continues on in the picturesque language, if you would just get it right, then God would bless you. you know, and again, there's an element of truth to that, but it's not, again, the reason that things are happening the way they are. Job responds in the next three chapters to Zophar, 
chapter 12, then Job answered and said, no doubt you are the people and wisdom will die with you. But I have understanding as well as you. I am not inferior to you indeed. Who does not know such things as these? I am one mocked by his friends who called on God and he answered him, the just and blameless who is ridiculed. And again, he refers to himself as the just and blameless. And you have to remember that the book starts out that way, that Job is blameless and upright and God referred to him as that way as well. It doesn't mean he's sinless, okay? It just means he's the real deal. And so, you know, you gotta love his sarcasm as he's coming. When you guys die, Wisdom is going to die with you because you, you guys are the bomb here. And Job goes on. He goes on to speak in chapter 12 of the sovereignty of God. And we're going to jump ahead to chapter 13. Behold, my eye has seen all this. My ear has heard and understood it. What you know, I also know. I am not inferior to you, but I would speak to the Almighty. And I desire to reason with God. But you, forgers of lies, you are all worthless physicians. God, in the end, is going to speak, and he will end up rebuking Job's friends. And again, what do we draw away from this? We draw that we want to be a comfort to those who are hurting. We get kind of an example of what not to do when somebody's going through it. And maybe some of you guys have had people come up to you and, and be like this, and you know the pain that it is. So... You know, the thing we want to do is not repeat that and just try and be there for one another. Job, he wants his day in court. You know, he'd love to be able to stand up for, for his righteousness. And he just doesn't know why this is happening to him. Jump to uh, verse 13 of chapter 13. Hold your peace with me and let me speak. Then let come on me what may. Why do I take my flesh and my teeth and put my life in my hands? Though he slay me. Yet will I trust him. Even so, I will defend my own ways before him. He also shall be my salvation, for a hypocrite could not come before him. Listen carefully to my speech and to my declaration with your ears. See now, I have prepared my case. I know that I shall be vindicated. Who is he who will contend with me? If now I hold my tongue, I perish. You got to love Job's unwavering trust in the Lord. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Warren Wiersbe says this is one of the greatest declarations of faith in the Bible. He also shall be my salvation. Satan said he would curse God to his face. But Job said, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. And my question is, where do we stand? When the bottom's pulled out of everything, where do we stand? Are we fair weather followers? of God. If everything's going good, then I'm going to raise my hands and sing those praise songs. But man, when things start going rough, are we going to start blaming God? Are we going to turn away? Remember Job in the beginning, he fell towards the Lord and worshiped. We don't want to fall away from him. We want to fall towards him when we need him, especially the most. And I believe you guys, again, the way that's going to take place is if we lay that foundation and build upon that foundation now, while things are going relatively okay, to build on that so that we can stand when those difficult days do come. Finally, just a couple of verses of chapter 14 as we look at Job's hopelessness, I guess you might say. Chapter 14, man who is born of woman is a few days and full of trouble. He comes forth like a flower and fades away. He flees like a shadow and does not continue. 
It is true, like I'd mentioned earlier, that the time we have here on earth is so brief. As he speaks of the, the fading flower, so man's life, man's glory, Peter uh, references the same thing in 1 Peter 1.24, where he says, all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and its flower fails, falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Now, this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. Again, whether it's the steam off of your coffee cup or whether it's the withering grass when the sun rises, all the glory of man, all of the great things that, that we've accomplished, like the flower, you know, wildflower season, there's it's so beauty, and then all of a sudden it all fades away. That's kind of the picture of, of man as existence. But God, his word, his gospel, that's what endures forever. And the gospel, the good news is Jesus that he's made a way for us to have life and life abundantly. You know, I wanted to end with this one scripture out of the Psalm of Moses that Joe referenced earlier on the song we sang. He says, so teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. We only have so many days left and this is something, teach us to number those days. How many days are there that we have left? Well, we could look, I guess, at, at what the average lifespan is for a man or the average lifespan of a woman. And I didn't look it up on purpose because we have an elderly congregation here. <laughs> and that's not the word to leave everybody with as we go. But you know, I mean, you could look at your own parents and how old were my parents when they passed away? 90 and 82, okay, split the difference, 86-ish. I take that number, I subtract my age, and what do I get? How many years, roughly, on average, at the most, probably, you know, do I have left? And then you start thinking about that. How many more election cycles do I have to go through? How many more Winter Olympics do I get to see? You know, I, I, I think about teaching through the Bible. It takes me 10 or 15 years to go all the way through to do that, uh, teaching it. And I think, how, how many more? To, so I look at, you know, going through Job, it's like, you know, Good chance this is my last time teaching through the book of Job. And you start, what does it do for us? Gains us a heart of wisdom. It's wisdom to look at how much time we have so that we can have the right perspective. What am I going to do with my life? And, and that's, again, where the question should be more so, Lord, what do you want to do with my life? To make the most of the days that we have. To maximize our time here on earth. Check this out. I didn't put this scripture up here, but this... This will add to it. Psalm 139, 16, David said, okay, this is like being formed in the womb. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed, and in your book they all were written, the days fashioned for me when as yet there were none of them. Is it the sobering thing that I want to word it as? God sees every day we're going to live. We want to finish strong, don't we? We want to live out the rest of our days. I want to make the right decisions. I, you know, I, I, I know what I want to do, but I don't know exactly what it's going to be because it hasn't happened yet, but God sees it. And that can be kind of sobering. But let it be in light. Let it be, lift your spirit and go, God, I want to finish strong. Because he's still given us a free will, hasn't he? He's given us the capacity to make those decisions all the way until the end. And so let's make those right decisions Finish strong and hear those words, well done, my good and faithful servant. Amen. So you can see where it's going to be valuable to read ahead. So if you could read ahead, 
chapters 15 through 21, so it's a lot shorter of a section next week, but it'll give you kind of that background, give you some time to meditate upon it, and also stir up maybe some questions that you have. I wonder exactly what is coming from here, and, and maybe it will bring some, you know, some enlightenment as we go through it a little bit more too. All right? Um, let's go ahead and stand for a closing word of prayer. Just thank the Lord for the time that we have here together. Father, I do want to thank you for your word and thank you especially for the salvation that we have. And Lord, as we're going through the book of Job and recognizing this, this picture of this man who showed such patience and perseverance as he put his trust in you, Lord, I know that's the desire of every one of our hearts, especially the ones that are here right now that are going through things where the bottom has been pulled out from under and are hurting really bad. I pray especially for them that they would be able to hang on to you, to look to you, to cry out to you, and to receive that comfort that you bring in our time of need. We thank you, Lord, for being our refuge, for being our strength, especially when those difficult times come. And Lord, I pray for all of us that we will not only have that foundation laid, but that we will build upon that foundation so that we'll be able to stand strong, whether it's the things that just randomly happen because we live in a fallen world, whether it's Satan's attacks that are coming against us, whatever it may be, that we would be able to stand strong in the truth, know the truth, and let that be that which would build us and be able to help us stand against the difficulties that this life brings. Uh, please may your hand be upon each one as we go our way this week. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to lift up this last song of worship, and I, I just want to open it up for you guys to come forward and, and uh, let us pray with you, okay? Let's pray together.